hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 51. Stop me if you've heard this one. If there's something that people the world over can agree on, it's that getting involved in the Middle East is a dicey proposition. But the challenges of getting involved there have never seemed to deter anybody. The birthplace of some of the world's most ancient civilizations, and a center of culture and commerce ever since then, it is on paper a juicy acquisition for any prospective empire. But by the 1900s, the old attractions of the region, the fertile soil and access to trade routes, were falling by the wayside as new conquerors came with different goals. For Britain and France, the Middle East was a final area of expansion and held a special attraction to the British. And by special attraction, I mean oil. Sure, France wanted a piece of it too, but the region was something of an afterthought for them, and their interests stemmed from prior investments in Lebanon and Syria in the decades leading up to World War I. Their main focus was always going to be Europe. The efforts to push their interests there were, as always, to check the British and ensure they didn't get everything. But for Britain, it was the oil. Also, securing avenues approached India, which was kind of an instinctual British thing, and which was a concern when the Bolsheviks and Russia stabilized their government and became a potential threat. The newcomers, though, wouldn't bring the centuries of relative stability that the outgoing Turks brought with them. Oh no, they instead managed to open a Pandora's box that would create decades of headaches that haven't actually been solved to this day. It would be the post-World War I years that were the start of the ongoing Western interventions in the Middle East. Not to say there wasn't meddling before, but the presence of the old Ottoman Empire had kept Western armies mostly out of the area. Except Napoleon that one time, but that was Napoleon. The point is, the Ottoman Empire of four centuries ruled the region that today encompasses Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, and maintained a certain measure of peace, one that wouldn't be replaced by the Europeans. That long history, though, wasn't able to stop the invading British armies. And that it was British-led armies alone that invaded the area is an important distinction. The French, being stretched in at home, couldn't spare an army of their own to invade the Levant, despite by treaty being entitled to a sizable chunk of it. This meant that from the get-go, there was going to be an inter-entente tussle to decide who actually got what once boots were actually on the ground. And then there was the little matter of the people who actually, you know, lived in the area. They were as diverse a lot as they are today, split across ethnicity, culture, and religion. The Turkish Empire had been handy as they acted as a kind of mostly accepted arbiter, but that was all about to change. Neither the British or French had well-developed support, and in fact, were not welcomed by the locals. The actual inhabitants felt ready to manage their own affairs, but the Europeans, not about to let fresh conquests slip through their fingers, disagreed. During the Paris Peace Conference, President Wilson was able to argue against direct annexations, and held the UK and France to accepting a custodian role in the Middle East, and governing their new lands as League of Nations mandates. Uh, what this meant was that they would act as guides and developers, with an eye towards granting independence to the mandates in the future. Uh, too bad the eventual treaty didn't lay out a specific timeline or plan to actually do that, and both empires would cling to their influence in the region as hard as they could. But let's get started as to how that all actually played out. So, the European presence got going during World War I, when the Ottoman Empire joined up with the Central Powers, hoping to break the cycle of foreign interference in their crumbling empire. They actually performed well, bending off constant Entente invasions and outright humiliating them at places like Gallipoli and Kut. 
World War I was a marathon, though, and not a race, and the Turks simply didn't have the resources to handle conflict on several fronts. An Indian-British army was advancing in Iraq, a Russian army had invaded from the Caucasus Mountains to the north, and a British army by 1918 had taken Jerusalem and was bearing down on Damascus. This last front is important because working alongside the British was an Arab army under Prince Faisal. If you remember way back in episode 3, I mentioned that he was a prince from the Arabian Peninsula that had thrown in with the British to expel the Turks. His father, Hussein, was Sharif of Mecca, and strictly speaking, a functionary of the Turks. If you look at maps of the Ottoman Empire towards its end, you'll note that they were assigned a strip of land that ran south along the Arabian Peninsula. The part of that extending south of modern-day Jordan, that was the part Hussein governed on their behalf. During World War I, Hussein saw an opportunity to advance his own interests and declared himself independent, and also the king of all Arabs. Uh, this grandiose claim would not just include the Arabian Peninsula, but all the Arabs in the Ottoman Empire to the north as well. The point man to push his father's claim of leadership was Faisal. Working with the British, and most famously Lawrence of Arabia, he led a band of a few thousand against the Turkish garrisons to the north eventually advancing through the deserts on the flank of the British army heading towards Damascus. His campaign was successful, and he found himself the main Arab ally of the British in Syria by the end of the war, hopeful that they would back his ambition of creating an Arab kingdom in Syria under his leadership, rather than his dad's. He was well aware, though, that he was on delicate ground. The infamous Sykes-Picot Treaty had awarded Syria and northern Iraq to France, which meant that, in French eyes, he was squatting on their new territory. Luckily for him, many of the UK's leaders didn't want France in the Middle East at all. They didn't want France so close to India, despite Syria not really being close to India, and also were irked that the French hadn't contributed to, the, to its conquest. And besides, possession was nine-tenths the law, and Faisal was already there. Plus, the UK leaders, like Lloyd George, believed Faisal to be their client and would act on their behalf. Back in Paris, Clemenceau didn't take these calls for Arab independence kindly during the first months of 1919. Nor was he pleased when the British counterproposed that Faisal would govern Syria under French guidance. A detachment of French troops had landed in Beirut, but were too few to occupy all of Syria, settling for the coasts around the city. From there, Arab troops at Faisal's direction launched hit-and-run attacks on those French troops, while the British in the area refused to let the French retaliate against him. The area remained politically in a state of suspended animation while the outcome of the peace conference was hashed out. All through 1919, and even after the Paris talks, the British and French wrangled over their spheres of influence. Lloyd George had hoped that the U.S. would be an ally to restrict the French, but when Woodrow Wilson retired back to America, having been politically beaten at home, he finally allowed himself to come to terms. In the meantime, the atmosphere of the region had been poisoned against the Europeans. It had dawned on everyone that the invaders were there to stay, and that their promises of Arab independence were hollow. An American commission that had been sent to the region to ascertain the opinions of the actual inhabitants had been undermined and manipulated by the Europeans at every turn, and its results ignored even when it was belatedly published years later. Its only effect was to further poison relations for everybody involved. But a kind of peace was finally settled on by early 1920. In one of Clemenceau's last actions while in office, he met with Faisal and agreed that Syria would be an independent kingdom. But Faisal would have to keep a staff of French advisors. It would technically be a French mandate, but would have much more autonomy than originally envisioned. 
Faisal, though, was a stranger in Syria, and had to tread carefully between the French and the native Syrian elites, who had interests of their own, and had had no say in the selection of their new king. If he messed this deal up, he might not have a place to go back to, as his dad did not have a good go of it back south. Hussein had always been one of many leaders in the area, and wasn't even the only British client in Arabia. While he oversaw much of the western coastal areas there, he had a rival further to the interior in the east. Ibn Saud, future founder of Saudi Arabia, was moving in on his territories. Hussein couldn't summon the forces needed to stop his rival, and gradually lost ground, being forced to flee to British territory in the north by 1924. So for Faisal, it seemed taking hold of Syria was his best chance of actually ruling anything. His new kingdom, though, didn't have the best prospects. Syria found itself the landing site of many of the Ottoman Empire's disaffected or displaced, and the prince didn't quite have a firm handle on the situation. He had set up a Syrian National Congress in June 1919 in order to provide some legitimacy to his decisions, but the eventual makeup of the Congress reflected the population's ambivalence towards him. In its first meeting in 1919, the group declared their desire not just for full independence, but also the incorporation of Palestine, Lebanon, and Transjordan. Just a note, uh, Transjordan at the time was considered part of Palestine, uh, just the eastern part of it, and encompassed the same boundaries as the modern nation of Jordan. Due to its size and deferring local conditions, it was often referred to separately, and I'll do so here. Faisal would have been thrilled to have such an enlarged kingdom, but knew it wasn't possible, and realized from the start he was going to have a rowdy group of representatives to work with. The second meeting of the Congress in March 1920 was a little more moderated, but still demanded full independence and Lebanon. This was still a little more than the French and British were prepared to allow, but Faisal couldn't back down or he would risk losing the backing of his own subjects. To secure his own domestic position, he went on the offensive against the French. Raids were continued on French positions on the coast, and he opened up communication with Mustafa Kemal in Turkey. Remember, in mid-1920, France was still trying to assert its claims in southeast Turkey and had troops moving into the area. Faisal denied them use of Syrian railways, which isolated French troops in Turkey and contributed to the eventual decision in Paris to make nice with Kemal and leave the country. That was great for Kemal, but bad for Faisal, as the French now turned their eyes on him. The French transferred troops to Beirut, and on July 14, 1920, delivered Faisal an ultimatum. He would accept French overlordship and disband his army, or face a full-scale invasion. Faisal, wanting to avoid a losing war, gave in, but not so unconditionally as the French would have liked. They launched the invasion anyway, and the Arab troops were pushed aside by the mostly Senegalese colonial troops. By July 26th, Damascus was taken, and two days later, Faisal was exiled. Uh, this isn't nearly the last of Faisal we'll hear about, but he was done for in Syria. And that isn't to say France was going to have a good time there either, as the country was going to be a thorn in their side. The ease of deposing Faisal also led them to make the faulty assumption that Arab nationalism was just the result of British influence, and that the rest of this there was all they're doing. The British, meanwhile, were undermined in their territories, as they presented themselves as partners of Faisal and supporters of Arab independence. When they had stood aside passively after the Syrian Congress declared independence and then allowed Faisal to be overthrown, they lost a lot of their credibility. Another drain on Britain's own standing in the region was its support of Zionism in Palestine. 
Zionism being the idea that Jews the world over should immigrate to Palestine and found a new Israeli state, something that eventually happened in 1948. And in case you're wondering, no, we're not going to cover that particular topic in great detail for practical reasons that I hope are all too obvious. But Britain had issued the Balfour Declaration, which was a 1917 document expressing official UK support for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This had been previously a non-state project for many European Jews, stretching back decades, and Jewish colonization of the area had been underway since the late 1800s, with tens of thousands trickling into the area before World War I. With Britain coming into possession of Palestine, they were seen as natural supporters of Jews wishing to settle in the area, something the local Arabs were sensitive to as they saw the country as, understandably, their land. The French noticed this sentiment and figured they could score some points with the Arabs and proceeded to officially denounce Zionism in the strongest manner possible, which, yes, did cross over into overt anti-Semitism. The French wanted to check the British in any way, but feared a distinctly Jewish state might undermine their influence in Palestine even more than a British mandate, and in the worst-case scenario, might even spread into Syria. The British saw France's position in Syria as a threat, that they might move into Palestine itself. Supporters of Faisal, including his brother Abdullah, had moved into the region of Transjordan and were threatening to raid across the border into Syria. The worry was that the French would respond by occupying the mostly desert Transjordan and incorporate it into their Syrian possession. The British, for their part, had wound down most of their troops in the area and were dealing with crises across the world by this time and were stretched too thin to even garrison Transjordan. Abdullah ruled the area on their behalf and would in time establish his own dynasty that, to this day, still rules the Kingdom of Jordan. The fear of French invasion, coupled with the increasing animosity between Jews and Arabs in Palestine proper, put the British on the back foot and wondering why they were even there to begin with. The situation for them in Iraq just compounded that feeling. Iraq was an artificial mandate, a result of three Ottoman provinces based on Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra being fused together. But that fusion was only on paper. On the ground, the situation was borderline hopeless. The Sunni elites in Baghdad preferred a quick transfer to an independent state dominated by them, which even the British recognized that the Shia and Kurds wouldn't have any of that. It was pointed out to the British, though, that by mid-1920, that they had been in Baghdad for three years and had not set up a local government, while they had quickly handed Damascus and Syria over to Faisal. The patience of many inhabitants of Iraq would not last forever, with no plan of self-government being offered. Raids had been taking place on isolated British detachments throughout the country since mid-1919. The British, though, ignored the point and continued to insist on their own administration. This backfired in late June 1920, when a general revolt swept across the whole of the country. The scale of the rebellion was terrifying, because only 35,000 British troops patrolled Iraq in scattered bands. The Kurds rose up in the northern mountains, the desert tribesmen joined in, the Shia declared a holy war, and even Faisal's supporters in the country turned on the British. The situation was dire enough at the start that a complete evacuation was contemplated. By mid-August, the Arabs had even declared a provisional government. The scattered British outposts held out, though, as the Iraqis lacked the weapons and discipline needed to fully overcome them. Plus, the British had air superiority. If you've listened to both the British series and the colonial episodes up to this point, you know that the UK's army was terribly stretched during this time, so they made fantastic use of air power to deliver bombs and machine gun fire quickly and cheaply 
to some of the most remote places in their empire. Which should sound familiar, as that strategy became a favorite of occupiers who wanted to minimize their commitments on the ground. While the planes of 1920 were far more primitive than the ones of today, they had a devastating effect. The Iraqi forces lacked any anti-air-capable weapons, and so had no way of actually shooting them down. The wide expanses of much of Iraq meant that the planes and deserts became shooting galleries for the UK pilots. And the British also had India a relatively short distance away. The army there came pouring in and started moving north in numbers, relieving the garrisons as they went. Tens of thousands of Iraqis died in the fighting, and British control was not fully restored until February 1921. The British governor of Iraq denied that there had been any nationalist sentiment present in the country, and that the revolt was an act of anarchist madness. Popular opinion among the UK's leaders was split so that the revolt could possibly be traced back to Faisal, the French, Bolsheviks, maybe even the Americans as they might have wanted to take over oil operations there. The terrifying thing about the whole fiasco was that the British didn't seem to learn any real lesson from the episode only that they lacked the resources and wherewithal to permanently hold the country. Winston Churchill, as Secretary of State of the Colonies at the time, was tasked with finding some way to get out and save face. His solution was to bring in Faisal and make peace with him by swapping out a crown in Syria for one in Iraq. Catch, though, was that it had to appear like the populace called for it. They didn't actually have to, and it didn't have to be overly convincing, but an appearance had to be made. That way, the fiction of Faisal being a truly independent actor could be maintained. They had to work fast, as resistance was still simmering. A politician named Saeed Talib, who had served in the Ottoman administration, had been touring the Arab portions of Iraq, calling for local Iraqi rule. The British governor wound up inviting him to dinner, and then arresting him afterwards, shipping him off to Ceylon. The Council of Ministers, the local body of notables that represented Iraq to the British, got the hint. And when Faisal entered the country on June 24, 1921, they welcomed him warmly. On July 11th, they endorsed his rule, and after a can't-lose popular vote in August, he was elected king of Iraq. Faisal immediately started turning the screws to the British once on the throne, though. He first laid out that he expected to act independently, and that there would be no mandate, that status implying the British had some authority over him. The British side-eyed each other and muttered about launching a coup. Ultimately, though, cooler heads prevailed, mostly because they didn't want the nation's oil falling into the hands of the French or Americans in the event of conflict. They would play nice with Faisal. The Anglo-Iraqi Treaty signed in October 1922 established Iraqi autonomy, but Britain would maintain control of Iraqi foreign policy and play a key role in its defense. This last part was especially important as Iraq suffered from constant local revolts, which the British were called upon to put down. Using mostly air power, these revolts would cost tens of thousands of Iraqi lives. And while Faisal played a cagey game to gather as much autonomy as he could, he still depended on the British. This went doubly so after Ibn Saud started securing southern Arabia and turned his eye northwards. The British were the ones that had to step in and force Saud to recognize a set northern border, which for Saudi Arabia remains to this day. Faisal would eventually gain full independence for his kingdom in 1932, but his rule would never be secure for him or his successors, and Britain never fully left the kingdom as a result. The importance of the country's oil resources was simply too great to risk falling to a nationalist government should the monarchy be overthrown. This instability would be one of the myriad distractions for the British Empire, 
and would create a brief window of Axis activity in the area come World War II. The French, for their part, found themselves stuck in a quagmire of their own later on in Syria, although this was somehow even more of their own making. Once taking direct control of the country over, the French immediately divided Syria into four separated provinces with their own local government, as well as assigning much more land to Lebanon, bringing it to its modern borders. This inflamed Syrian opinion, as they saw it correctly as a means to divide the nation. One of these states was Jabal al-Druz, which, as its name suggests, was chiefly inhabited by the Druze community. The Druze, long story short, are an Abrahamic faith that derived originally from Islam, but don't follow its tenets exactly, and instead incorporated beliefs from all over into a mix that I'm not even going to get into. The local French governor, one Captain Gabriel Carbelet, decided that the local peasants needed emancipation via getting real jobs, namely in constructing infrastructure that would benefit the French administration. He envisioned a series of public works to modernize the area and boost the economy. The peasants weren't interested, and he turned to forced labor. This really ticked people off, and when Carbalet was abroad on holiday in spring 1925, he approached his boss to remove him. His boss, General Maurice Sorel, was a heavy-handed guy, though, and invited the local leaders to hear their case. Upon their arrival in Damascus, he arrested and exiled them. Sultan Alatrosh, and no, he's not a sultan, that's just his name, was a local Druze leader who had wisely declined the invite and responded to the outrage by launching a revolt. Well, you could say he was just restarting his ongoing revolt. Uh, he had never actually reconciled with the French and had actually carried on a guerrilla war from Transjordan until Abdullah and the British had chased him out and yeah, he had made a temporary peace with the French in 1923. Uh, anyway, on July 22, 1925, he opened his new revolt with an ambush on a French troop column, killing over 150 colonial troops. The small win brought volunteers flocking in, swelling the Syrian ranks to almost 10,000. They met a detachment of 3,000 French troops on August 2nd and destroyed that force as well, killing 1,000 and causing the remainder of the unit to flee in complete confusion. Word of the fighting spread via traveling merchants, and within a couple months the whole country was in revolt. Rebels were enroaching on Damascus by October, and Syrian auxiliaries were turning against their French commanders. The French turned towards local minorities, like the Kurds and Armenians, to hunt down insurgents that they themselves didn't even know where to begin to look for. On October 18, 1925, the French deployed tanks into the Damascus streets, as rebels had taken over much of the city by then. It wasn't enough, and on the following day, all French troops were withdrawn, and the city was subjected to an air and artillery barrage which meant that they took the city back, but they also had to bomb the hell out of it, which was less than ideal. This all caused General Sorel to come under heavy scrutiny back in Paris. There, the government was controlled by the coalition of center-left and left parties that operated between the two Poincare governments. You know, the one that was under constant assault by the business class of France while in the midst of an economic crisis. You might say that the revolt was happening at a very bad time, and they wanted this to be controlled. Too bad that the time for that had passed, and the French were stuck with an international embarrassment as their government was falling apart back home. And since Syria was a mandate, it wasn't just a territory that France could run roughshod over. I mean, the British certainly committed more than their fair share of atrocities in Iraq, but that was out of sight in the countryside. They hadn't been forced to bombard Baghdad. Now, international observers started entering Syria and questioning if France was doing war crimes. General Sorel tried to deflect criticisms from Paris, 
but that didn't work, and he was recalled on October 30th. His replacement, Maurice Gamlin, is somebody who is going to be very important, as he's the guy who will be leading the French army when the Germans invade in 1940. In Syria, he called in reinforcements and started taking the country back town by town across 1926. The French leadership were also in a jam as they had a wiggle out of getting in trouble with the court of global public opinion. This wouldn't be easy as by the time the League of Nations Mandates Commission met in February 1926, details of French atrocities had become well known, and there was little appetite among the members of the commission to assist France. Rather, they spent a lot of time debating if the French needed to be censored in some way. Uh, just a bit of background, the Mandates Commission was a board of nations made up of the great powers and a rotating cast of lesser states. They monitored if the nations who governed the mandates of ex-German and Ottoman territories were acting in accordance with their treaty obligations. For the French, it was an uncomfortable position to be in. They worked to cut communications between Syria and the outside world, so that the Syrian case couldn't be made properly before the commission. Some correspondence that got out, though, indicated to the commission that things were getting worse in the country. The French might have been making good progress militarily by August 1926, but their attempt at creating a new Syrian government ended in disaster, as the handful of Syrians who agreed to take part immediately declared themselves publicly against the French presence. Hatred against the French was only growing, but two things helped them out. First, the international outcry died down as people lost interest. It wasn't exactly as immediate as modern day, but by the latter part of 1926, there was less newspaper space devoted to the topic around the world. This gave members of the commission more freedom to act beneficially towards France. The other thing was that the composition of the commission was other Europeans, most of them colonizers. Portugal and Spain, for example, were perfectly content to let the French do as they pleased in Syria, so long as they got to do the same in case their own possessions rose in rebellion. An American journalist named B.F. Dawson had actually gone into Syria and reported first-hand accounts of indiscriminate air bombings of villages, killing every kind of helpless civilian. The commission, though, felt comfortable enough by late 1926 to dismiss his accounts as unreliable. Instead of backing independence for Syria, which had been on the table, the League allowed the status quo to continue, which allowed the French to wear the rebellion down. By early 1927, the country had been pacified and a general amnesty was made for the rebels, many of which accepted. Alatrash, though, was not offered amnesty and fled back to Transjordan. He remained there until allowed back in in 1937 and played a role the last revolution needed to secure Syria's independence in 1946. Unlike so many of the people I talk about, he lived in 91 and only died in 1982, a hero of his nation. For Syria, the war had been a disaster as much of the country had been reduced to rubble. Refugees streamed into Damascus, despite that city too having suffered severe damage. But French rule would hang on, the revolt a telling example of how seriously France took its imperialist ambitions, and also a show for how the League of Nations wasn't necessarily the most well-equipped organization to corral major powers. Moving on again, the last major piece of the Middle East puzzle was Persia. Technically independent and officially neutral, Persia had nevertheless become a battleground in World War I. The Ottoman Empire had wanted to use northwest Persia as a route to invading Russian Azerbaijan, a move countered by both Russia and Britain, who occupied much of the country. War in the mountainous areas was brutal for all sides, and even when the Russian army disintegrated, it wasn't long before the Turks suffered the same fate. 
That left the Persians, devastated in the fighting and wounded in pride, momentarily alone with the British. For a time, it looked like the coast was clear. The UK held control of the oil fields, and, well, that's all that mattered. The Bolsheviks, though, had other ideas. Having gained momentum during the Russian Civil War, small units of the Red Army began moving into northern Persia around the Caspian Sea. The British had actually set up a naval base in the town of Venzili on the Persian coast of the Caspian Sea. This had been done to support a task force of British troops that had gone northwards to block the previous Turkish advance towards Baku, and was still in operation. The ships that the British had brought into the Caspian had been turned over to the White Russians in 1919 to help in their fight with the Reds, but were confiscated when their faction collapsed. Still, the Bolsheviks took this as a provocation and moved on the base. On May 18, 1920, 13 small Russian ships appeared outside in Zili and launched a surprise landing. The British garrison was immediately overwhelmed and surrendered. They were allowed to evacuate, but had to abandon the facility's ships and their weapons. Weeks later, a Persian Socialist Republic was declared. The British couldn't make a proper response because this was right at the start of the Iraqi revolt I talked about earlier. Imperial overreach. It's real, folks. The only force available in Persia capable of contesting the Bolsheviks was the Persian Cossack Division. And just to explain the name, it had been originally set up in 1879 as a bodyguard unit by the Russian Tsar at the time as a gift to the Persian Shah. And while it had utilized Russian officers in more modern times, the Cossack element was not maintained and its troops by 1920 were Persian. The remaining Russian officers proved just as successful as their counterparts in the White Armies in defeating the Reds, which is to say not very, and the British arranged for their removal. Command was placed in the hands of a Persian officer named Reza Khan, probably the most capable officer in the army. General Edmund Ironside, the British commander on the scene, wanted him in charge of the whole Persian army, but the Shah feared Khan deposing him, which was an entirely well-founded fear, as Ironside didn't care for the Shah and respected Khan, convincing the latter to march his Persian Cossacks into Tehran on February 21, 1921. This action wasn't authorized by the British government, but Ironside was aware that British forces were leaving the country and that drastic action had to be taken to oppose the communists. The Qajar dynasty, which had ruled Persia since 1789, was toppled in short order. Khan would install himself first as prime minister, before elevating himself to Shah in December 1925. He managed to rally the nation around him and to diplomatically resolve his conflict with the Bolsheviks. Both they and the British were already moving to wind down the conflicts between them, and Khan secured in February 1921 a treaty of friendship with Moscow. The Socialist Republic, having been abandoned by their patrons, was dissolved. As a leader, he charted a more independent course and was circumspect with the British. While he did not give them the total leeway that the UK had enjoyed with Qajars, he did not move to dislodge them from their oil interests. Seeing as how he built up a stable state that kept the oil flowing through the British Petroleum Company, the new status quo suited London just fine. We'll be checking back in on him later, as Persia becomes of vital interest to his two powerful neighbors, and his country becomes a plaything during wartime. And that about wraps up my coverage of the Middle East, and actually for the European empires as a whole for now. For the British and French especially, these years constituted the peak of their dominions. But that peak was a superficial one. Especially in the case of the Middle East, the imperial administrations were drains on their coffers, and made the public question the value of such ventures. While the economic exploitation of these distant lands across the globe certainly enriched many back in Europe, and 
would provide a gigantic resource base for them to work with once uh, wartime returned, they were also sources of aggravation and anxiety. In the case of the UK, having to deal with so many moving parts kept their attentions permanently distracted. Not to say that they were totally blind to threats on the horizon, but they were so busy with the big picture that little details like maybe stop people who are promising future wars kind of slipped by them. And with commitments everywhere, they were unable to focus on any one place at a time, which would come back to haunt them in wartime as they'd be split across numerous fronts all over the world. France suffered less from the problem of distraction, always knowing where their primary concern was. But their empire also put them in competition, however pointless, with the British. Not just disagreements over European affairs, but also tensions over one possibly getting over on the other, strained relations in a period of time when they should have been working together in lockstep to enforce their mutual security. The empires would be huge factors in the conflicts ahead, but during peacetime they proved in many cases to be sources of instability. Oh well, them's the breaks of imperialism for ya. Okay, now that we have all that out of the way, we're going to turn our attention to the Far East, and back to covering a single major state in detail. We got away from Europe before this last series, now let's get away from their empires as well. Not to say that they'll ever be fully out of mind, but Japan is a fun example of an Asian nation that not only preserved its own independence, but became a great power in its own right. Granted, they used that good fortune to make an empire of their own, but that's just because they learned it from their European mentors. Next week, we start in the land of the rising sun. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.